Hello and welcome to the China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. For this episode of the Talks on China podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Lucas Baden. Lucas is a Yenching scholar at Peking University in Beijing. His research interests include great power relations in Eurasia and the foreign and security policies of Russia and China. Lucas holds a dual MSc in international relations from the LSE and Sciences Po Paris. Lucas is also a former classmate of mine, and he was very much the, the one driving discussions while I was uh, more than content with, with soaking up um, Reed's shamelessly stealing his, his excellent arguments in, in class. The, the reason we've asked Lucas to come on the podcast today is that he wrote a fantastic piece for LSE Ideas uh, prior to Christmas titled In the Russian Arctic, China Treads on Thinning Ice, which looks at China's growing influence in the Arctic and hurdles it will need to overcome to become a true Arctic power. I will include a link to the piece in the podcast notes. This is a very timely discussion, given that the UK Ministry of Defence published its inaugural Arctic strategy yesterday, in which China's increased investment and activity in the, the region was explicitly referred to, as well as concerns over wider geopolitical threats spilling over into the region being expressed by Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. I should mention that this podcast is being recorded two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine and developments could impact some of the content discussed in this podcast. Lucas, welcome to the Talks on China podcast. It's great to have you on and let's jump straight into it. Why has the Arctic Brilliant. become an increasingly intense geopolitical battleground? Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I guess a good place to start would be to consider what the Arctic was like before uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, an intense geopolitical battleground by all means, and a highly militarized region on top of that. Um, after the end of the Cold War, the region saw a pretty substantive political settlement um, and uh, Arctic states, um, the states with territories in the Arctic, uh, found ways to uh, perhaps engage in pretty substantial international cooperation. I think that that's the functionality of that order in the Arctic was pretty much based on um, a general climate of cooperation and a general political set settlement after the Cold War between Russia, which is the largest Arctic state, and the West. And part of that fundament, of that foundation of the political settlement in the Arctic has progressively eroded, especially uh, after 2014. Um, and the, uh, with the Russian annexation of Crimea. Um, but secondly, there's, a, there's another element to, to sort of the heightening of geopolitical tension in the region. That's, of course, climate change. Um, because uh, climate change, which is impacting the Arctic at a much faster rate than it is any other area, uh, than it is impacting any other area on the planet, that the melting of the Arctic ice caps means that um, shipping routes are opening up or potential shipping routes uh, are opening up in regions that would have previously not been navigable. And uh, some resource, natural resource deposits in the region that would have previously been out of reach for commercial exploitation um, are soon expected to open up 
And that, of course, attracts a lot of interest, not just from Arctic states, but also from states beyond the region. And on top of that, um, climate change, of course, poses a lot of um, sort of second degree threats to countries around the world. The melting of the polar ice caps will mean that sea levels will rise. Um, and uh, yeah, so you've got a bunch of countries around the world that are that are interested in what's happening in the polar region and and sort of in the inter interlinkages between 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 climate change, their own potential profit, but also their own national security in a way. I think that's a fascinating overview and the, the, the climate change point is, is obviously key here in that obviously we see the, the ill effects of, of climate change around the world, but, but also within the Arctic, we, we see this sense of opportunity in, in terms of shipping lanes being opened up and, and access to, to resources. Um, and you talk talk about how these things have, have kind of sparked debates over, over questions and, of sovereignty and, and international law. Would you be able to provide a, a very brief overview of the current major players in the Arctic, how the region is, is governed and, and maybe touch upon some of the, the disputes that are currently happening? Um, it's interesting that you mentioned international law, um, because uh, in international legal terms, unfortunately, unlike on the Antarctic continent, there isn't a single comprehensive treaty that governs um, international political questions, the distribution of territory of, 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 of maritime zones among, among the Arctic states. Arctic governance is uh, essentially a really complicated network of uh, treaties, multilateral organizations, cooperation efforts, um, both political, economic, and scientific, uh, and international legal frameworks, in particular the international law of statehood and the international law of the sea, all of which intersect in the region to, to have over the course of the past three decades provided especially the five so-called littoral states of the Arctic, those are the states, uh, the coastlines of which border the Arctic Ocean, with a pretty clearly defined set of rules for how to go about managing their relations. There aren't uh, any meaningful questions over territory uh, in the regions above the Arctic Circle. So the, the drawing of land borders between uh, the, 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 the Arctic nations is pretty much a settled matter. Um, in terms of the drawing of the boundaries of maritime boundaries and the boundaries between the so-called um, exclusive economic zones of the of the Arctic states, there is uh, a United Nations Convention, the UN, UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, uh, which has its own arbitrational mechanism. And each Arctic state uh, has the um, ability and the right to submit claims to uh, chunks of the Arctic seabed to that arbitrational committee. Um, and we'll need to provide the scientific evidence uh, that is supposed to aid that committee with the resolution of these conflicts over the seabed. But all Arctic states have essentially already agreed uh, on mechanisms to peacefully resolve uh, potential overlaps in their claims or like potential differences in terms of how these um, uh, how these how, the, how these claims will be be looked at and interpreted by the committee. I think in terms of who the most important players in the Arctic are, probably that's the Arctic Five, the so-called Arctic Five. That that's the five Arctic littoral states: Canada, uh, Denmark through Greenland, Norway, Russia, and the United States. And then there are also these states that uh, the territories of which lie above the Arctic Circle, but that don't border the Arctic Ocean. Those are specifically um, Finland, uh, Sweden, and and Iceland. And those eight uh, states form the Arctic Council. Is that right? Exactly. Those states uh, form the Arctic Council. They're permanent members, 
And then the Arctic Council also um, has uh, observer states, non-permanent members, and very importantly also includes um, indigenous groups that are represented uh, separately. Okay, yeah, it sounds an incredibly complex um, ecosystem of, of, of kind of laws and, and disputes, which brings us kind of nicely to, to the focus on China, which we're sort of supposed to do on this podcast. And in your article, you, you mentioned China's 2018 Arctic Policy White Paper, which was published by the State Council. And you said in the article that um, politicians and pundits at the time argued that this paper showed that Beijing would seek to establish itself as a, as a new Arctic power, and in the process, deprive the eight Arctic states that form this Arctic Council uh, of their control over the region's abundant natural resources, you know, things like critical minerals, which are, are really hotting up as a, um, again, a geopolitical area. So, so why does China sort of believe that it is a, a near Arctic state, as it, as it likes to say? And have we seen an increased regional presence from China following the, the publishing of this white paper? That's a super interesting question. I think that China is trying to frame itself as a near-Arctic state because it has genuine interests in the Arctic. Uh, on the one hand, China has long been engaged in Arctic research. Uh, it's particularly interested in figuring out how climate change is changing the Arctic and how feedback effects from those changes uh, might uh, fall back onto the Chinese mainland. There are, however, also more substantial economic interests perhaps involved uh, on the Chinese side. On the one hand, um, China is interested in the natural resources of the region and the exploitation of the natural resources of the region, in particular, um, in particular of fossil fuels, in particular of energy resources, which are abundant, especially in the Russian Arctic, um, but also other sources of energy, geothermal energy, for instance. Perhaps more importantly, even however, with the melting of the Arctic ice caps, um, China, alongside other countries in East Asia, expects that in the future, new shipping lanes might open up between East Asia and Europe, that instead of going through maritime choke points such as the Malacca Strait or the Suez Canal might circumvent the Eurasian continent along the Russian Arctic coastline uh, into Europe and substantially reduce the time it would take to ship goods from the Chinese mainland, mainland to Europe. But finally, and I think this is an aspect that is often overlooked, um, China has an aspiration to become um, what it speaks about as, as a responsible great power a country that projects influence in regions around the world and that wishes to build for itself, to create for itself a stake in the governance of regions around uh, the world, of areas uh, of international politics, which it deems relevant um, for its own, own national interest. So perhaps this element of, of, of prestige, of wanting to... Um, build a stake and assert that stake for itself in the region that is quite far from the Chinese territory is, is also something that I think shouldn't be, shouldn't be overlooked. Um, in terms of the concrete Chinese engagement in the Arctic, yes, definitely. China's uh, significantly expanded its activities in the Arctic uh, in many, many different areas. In 2013, China became um, a permanent observer uh, at the Arctic Council after many, many years of trying. Um, since there's been um, a lot of scientific cooperation, a lot of research activity in particular from the chi Chinese side in the region. Um, but China's also invested heavily uh, in resource extraction sites, uh, transport infrastructure, or other economic cooperation projects in, um, in different countries uh, in the Arctic. China has 
moreover, built for itself a nuclear-powered icebreaker, the Schürlung, which has substantially increased the country's ability to, um, to conduct shipping uh, of any variety in the Arctic region. China has also become a lot more active in uh, the region's international government governance, in particular um, through its participation in Arctic Council meetings. I mean, there's, there's loads to unpack there, and uh, the commercial side is obviously important um, with that that notion of a, a polar silk road, which you mentioned in the the piece, um, you know, and the the sea passage to the the lucrative European markets through the Arctic. But I'm probably more keen to to push back a little bit on this uh, idea of China projecting itself as a responsible great power and and playing a an increased role in in regional government uh, in regional governance. Sorry. And I, I want to kind of push on the, the white paper, the 2018 white paper that you mentioned before, stresses China's commitment to kind of upholding this institutional legal framework for Arctic governance and to respecting the, the sovereign rights of the Arctic states. But, but on the other hand, it asserts China's right as a non-Arctic state to, to participate in, in Arctic affairs under international law. And how does China sort of do the mental gymnastics to, to reconcile these two things. Uh, I, I presume that China is an advocate for freedom of navigation within the region, um, and that may be stepping on some toes. So the, the kind of second part to my question is, how have China's efforts to become this, this increased presence, presence key voice in, in Arctic affairs been received by Arctic states, which I think have been described by commentators as an insider's club. Yeah, so I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that uh, actually up until up until right now, the Arctic has been a very exclusive members-only club. Arctic governance might be messy, uh, might be complicated, but it also, also has worked quite reliably in a way to keep non-Arctic states and, and, and their interests in areas where perhaps they contradict the interests of the Arctic states themselves um, uh, at bay. I think uh, in terms of the in terms of the Chinese interests in the Arctic, um, there have been very different reactions from 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 different Arctic stakeholders. On the one hand, um, the reaction from the United States uh, to increased Chinese activities in the region has tended to view those activities through a, a lens of the um, a broader American um, global competition with China. Uh, and uh, the, the st strategic competition that Washington sees in its relationships with Beijing in recent years. So on the, in particular on the American side, a lot of the focus of the debate around China and the Arctic has focused quite substantially on questions of naval uh, and, and national security. China's activities in the region, be they investments, uh, or economic cooperation, efforts to extract resources, or uh, soft power or diplomatic initiatives have on the uh, American side in particular primarily been perceived as, um, as, as potentially worrisome and hostile in nature. However, uh, for many of the other Arctic states, um, uh, the reaction has been a little more mixed. On the one hand, these states um, tend to be quite keen on preserving the nature of Arctic regional governance as one that is exclusive, that uh, prevents outside states from um, developing too large a role in the conduct uh, conducting of, um, of regional uh, affairs and regional, regional governance. But uh, the states tend to also um, be interested in the massive economic opportunities that come with an increased Chinese presence in the region. Uh, 
right? In particular, as regards foreign direct uh, investment, um, foreign direct investment uh, from Western countries into, in particular, into Arctic territories hasn't always been substantial, and uh, Chinese corporations um, have uh, um, have 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 offered um, have have offered their 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 economic capacity for. Um, for the development of, of, of resources, of economic projects in those regions um, that many, many communities in the Arctic have, have been able to profit from, have been hoping to profit from. Um, and I think that's sort of a dynamic that's been particularly pronounced in, in the Russian Federation, for example, in Russia, uh, but also in smaller Arctic states, including particularly in Greenland, where you have about Chinese investments in the region amounting to 12% of, of regional GDP. Uh, you've got there were pretty substantial Chinese uh, investments in Finland, uh, in Norway, and other areas. Yeah, and you you mentioned Russia there. It's sort of the the elephant in the room, and obviously very topical at the moment. Uh, let's look at the the Russia China relationship with regard to the Arctic. And um, the relationship is obviously attracting a huge amount of uh, attention during this awful invasion of Ukraine. But in terms of the Arctic as a major player in the region, which Russia is, how willing has has Russia been to, to support China's ambitions and, and how have the, the two nations collaborated? That is also an incredibly interesting, very complicated question. In terms of the way Russia looks at the Arctic, I think one thing that's incredibly important to understand is that uh, Russia is the biggest Arctic state, both in terms of its territory and its population. And so for Russia, Arctic politics isn't just an international political question. It's primarily also a, a question of, of domestic politics. And because it is a question of domestic politics, Russia's primary interest in the Arctic has usually been to try to, in a way, create the framework conditions for the region to be able to develop economically, for there to be stable political background conditions so local communities could engage in, for example, the ex exploitation of resources or cross-border trade. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what has really motivated Russian, Russian diplomacy in the region, and that what that is probably also what motivated the um, you know what I would say is the original Russian stance on Arctic international governance, which is uh, or the original Russian interest in Arctic international governance, which is to keep the club of Arctic nations closed and uh, restricted to uh, Arctic nations only. Uh, and that was a stance that uh, the Russians adopted towards China prior to 2013. At the Kiruna summit of the Arctic Council in 2013, however, the Russian delegation performed a huge turnaround uh, and, and all of a sudden decided to support the Chinese application for observer status at the Arctic Council, predominantly because uh, in the years prior, uh, Chinese and Russian China, Russian cooperation in the energy sector had, had markedly increased. Um, and uh, people from within uh, the large Russian energy corporations operating in the Arctic, I think, lobbied the Russian government quite substantially to allow for greater Chinese participation in the area um, to facilitate the further inflow of Chinese direct investment uh, into those projects into the region, but also to potentially further open China as a market for, for, for Arctic resources uh, that are won in, in, in the Russian Arctic. This dynamic where Russia began to first warm up to and then actively accommodate um, Chinese economic activities in the Arctic in particular, started to accelerate really, really quite rapidly a year later after the Russian annexation of Crimea. Because 
Russian corporations operating in the Arctic were cut off from their most important sources of funding and of technological supplies. The Western Russians that were leveled against, uh, against Russia, against Moscow in 2014, meant that um, many of the crucial technologies that are needed for the offshore and onshore exploitation of, in particular, oil um, couldn't be brought from Europe into Russia any longer, and that many credit lines and economic lifelines between those projects in the Arctic and uh, funding institutions in the West, and in particular in American financial markets, were rapidly cut off. Russia's energy export infrastructure, which is really the sort of economic heart of the country, right? Russia's, the Russian economy depends almost exclusively on the export of raw materials, has an, an incredibly strong westward direction. Most of Russia's pipelines, also from the Arctic, they go straight towards Europe. Um, and that is something uh, that Russian policymakers and energy executives have been really worried about for a long time. And that's something that they uh, have long, for a very long time viewed as a potential sort of structural over-reliance that, that they sought to change in the past couple of years. And that's why in 2014, uh, right after the Western uh, sanctions um, against Russia were put into place, uh, Vladimir Putin traveled to Shanghai and sealed um, a huge mega deal uh, for the export of gas and oil with China. But then, of course, uh, there's also a different aspect. And that is that the Chinese-Russian bilateral relationship has just been, uh, on a global level, strengthened quite substantially uh, since 2014. And that is because China and Russia uh, hold mutual uh, shared grievances uh, in regards to, in particular, the United States and issues of global governance more broadly. Strengthening of the, of the, uh, the Chinese-Russian relationship in regards to their dealings with the West and with the United States is so important to both sides that I think it has also provided uh, additional incentives for Russia to perhaps to a certain degree uh, lower its guard um, as regards Chinese activities in the Arctic and provide more uh, significant entry points for China into the region. Yeah, so I guess, you know, there's two major factors at play there. There's the pressure from the, the Russian energy executives put on Putin, I guess, to, to facilitate further cooperation with China um, due to the, the sanctions that were placed on Russia and the shrinking European markets, and also that idea of, of great power competition and, and the kind of undermining of the, the Western liberal order, if you, you want to call it that. Um, and to move on to the, the present day um, and to probably unfairly ask you to do a little bit of, of crystal ball gazing, do you see this, this phenomenon or effect playing out again today? Do, do you see China being able to take on more of a regional presence um, as a result of the, the sanctions that are going to be placed on Russia due to its invasion of Ukraine? Because I guess any improvement in Russians' relations with the West would have worked to China's disadvantage in, in, in this respect. Is China's technology and cooperation maybe wouldn't have been Russia's first choice in the Arctic, but but Russia might sort of be left with with no choice now, you know, a kind of take what you can get phenomenon. You know what, I, I, as, as I said before, I think part of the problem with the Arctic is that uh, because it is a region within which you have multiple great powers, and in particular Russia, and then uh, a whole handful of NATO states, the politics of the region have long been quite neatly correlated to the state of relations between great powers on a global on a global stage. The Arctic over the past 30 years has been a place that has successfully been sheltered 
from the fallout of great power competition by Russia and the West, because that was in the interest of both sides. That was, in a sense, also an act of will. But I think that this willingness on both sides to shelter the region from conflicts elsewhere as much as possible is something that one that both sides will probably not be able to maintain in the face of the newest rift of, of the war in Ukraine. What does that mean for the Arctic? In the past two weeks, we have seen the seven non-Russian uh, Arctic Council members suspend the activities of the Arctic Council and saying that they will boycott the remaining meetings of the Arctic Council in Russia, which currently holds the rotating presidency of the Council. We uh, have seen a situation in which much of um, the cooperative infrastructure uh, of Arctic regional government uh, governance has essentially collapsed under the impact, under the ripple effects of what's happening in Ukraine. And this, of course, creates a risk that it will simply, for the Arctic states, not be possible to, in the future, maintain that system of governance and maintain a cooperative overall system of international governance in the Arctic. Um, and the impact that that is then in turn going to have on the involvement of non-Arctic states in the region is incredibly difficult to predict. I believe that question is strongly connected to this other question about which side of the Ukraine conflict China will in the end decide to come down on. In 2014, when, Ru when Russia annexed Crimea and the West started leveling um, sanctions against Russia, China, in a sense, managed uh, to tread a very fine diplomatic line between Russia and the West. It refused to officially recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea, but it also refused to chime in with Western complaints about Russia or to support Western sanctions. It was able to offer Russia and the Russian Arctic an economic lifeline um, without itself being severely impacted by Western sanctions. The question now is, will China be able to do something uh, that is similar in terms of its uh, magnitude? Will such a, such a tightrope walk be possible? Certainly not if China decides to come down on the Russian side of the argument, and if China decides to uh, not just subtly but openly support the Russian position on the Ukraine conflict. I think what we would be seeing then is, 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 is an absolute split, a rift that would go through, through the Arctic community of states, um, and that would then presumably also really facilitate the further entry of, uh, in particular, Chinese foreign direct investment in the Arctic, uh, in the Russian Arctic, simply because Russia would, no, would have no other choice. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, that Chinese technology will be able to replace all of the Western te te technology that is needed over there in the Russian Arctic, in particular in the energy sector. But on the other hand, uh, and I think that this is important to mention as well, um, if China were to come down on the Russian side of the argument over Ukraine, um, this would reinforce a tendency on the part of, in particular, the Western Arctic nations to become even more skeptical about uh, Chinese uh, economic activities in their own, in their own Arctic territories. Over the past couple of years, we've seen a pretty substantial political pushback, uh, especially in Greenland uh, and in Denmark, uh, but also partly in Norway, in Iceland uh, or in Finland, um, against increased Chinese investment in the Arc in, 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 in these countries' Arctic territories. And I think I think that sort of sense of suspicion and that sense of, of, of perhaps wanting to err on the side of caution when it comes to Arctic cooperation with China is 
something that would be reinforced in the in the other Arctic states were China to to openly come out in support of Russia's actions in Ukraine. I think I think that's all fascinating. The idea of a kind of bifurcated Arctic. You know, we, we hear a lot about the 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 ramifications of of China's position um, in terms of sanctions and um, impacts on China's economy and and potential ramifications for Taiwan, but. Um, the, the Arctic I haven't really seen discussed uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that it won't be able to insulate itself yeah fascinating and, and just to kind of run things off Lucas from the position of, of the UK and its allies if, if you want to call them that how have other major states acted upon geopolitical developments in the Arctic uh, and kind of Russia and China's growing role I think the EU adopted a resolution on its, its role in the Arctic, which focuses on climate, sustainable development, but also international cooperation. And I think from the UK side, the Arctic was, was maybe mentioned in passing in the, the integrated view, review, but not lingered on um, in any quite great detail. Um, but the, the UK does have observer status in the, the Arctic Council. I guess my question really is, how could like-minded democracies play a, a deeper role in the region? I think one thing that is incredibly important to remember is that at least from my point of view there is in a sense a, a a there are multiple security threats that are facing the arctic itself and that are emanating from the arctic and that concern both the uk and some of its allied states at the moment some of those threats and i think we've discussed them at great length already concern international politics and uh, concern military affairs, and perhaps even the distribution of power or economic statecraft in the region. They also concern the stability of regional governance, which, as I said, has been inc incredibly cooperative uh, and very peaceful over the past three decades. On the other hand, um, probably by far the most important security threat in the Arctic is climate change. And I think that climate change and the ripple effect that it might have on the national security of the UK and its allies in terms of the environmental degradation that will be caused by a rapidly rapid melting of the Arctic, but also the, the, the security impact that uh, climate change will have on the Arctic states themselves in terms of uh, destroying the livelihood of communities and, and eroding the foundations of the livelihoods of the many, many millions of people who live in that region. That, I think, is an hierarchic, a hierarchically superior threat in most ways. So perhaps in terms of the perspective that the UK and its allies and democratic states generally must adopt in terms of the Arctic, um, I, I think, um, and I think this is something that, by the way, that after, 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 after four years of the Trump administration in the United States, States, which in terms of its Arctic policy was very much focused, very much focused on the political, the diplomatic, the security conflict with China and Russia and great power competition in the region. We've now under, under, under President Biden seen a bit of a shift back towards the promotion of, of multilateralism. Um, I think it is broadly in the interest of democratic countries um, to view Arctic affairs primarily through a lens of climate change and the overwhelming, overwhelming need to cooperate to keep environmental degradation in the Arctic at bay as much as possible. And in order to be able to achieve that, um, cooperation with Russia and with China will also be needed. So I think an intelligent way, a, a very, very important way for the UK and its, and, and its allies and other democratic nations, um, perhaps to, to go about Arctic diplomacy in the coming years, is to once more find ways to engage in climate diplomacy in the Arctic and with Arctic stakeholders, uh, 
that is meaningful and impactful and meaningfully addresses the threats posed by climate change. And also, on the other hand, manages to separate from that the, the also rather substantial disputes and disagreements with China and Russia over questions of international politics and, and global order. Right. So I think this will also be this will be a very, very delicate affair in a sense where we'll have to we'll have to constantly keep in mind uh, a certain hierarchy of issues, a hierarchy of threats. We'll have to be able to separate different um, issues that we would like to um, negotiate on with China and Russia in this extremely complex region. And we um, will have to. Uh, attempt to perhaps work out as many ways as possible to cooperate with China and Russia on the issue of climate change, while perhaps finding a way to be firm in terms of promoting and protecting the interests of uh, democratic countries in the region in terms of, for example, uh, maintaining international governance structures as they are preventing conflict from breaking out in the region, preventing a militarization or further militarization of the region. Um, we will have to do that simultaneously. And that'll be an incredibly difficult diplomatic task, uh, but I think it's possible. Yeah, I think, you know, framing the region as, as a global issue, you know, contained within the, the greatest existential threat that we face at the moment in climate change, you know, that, that should be, this should be a global issue that a global Britain um, should be exploring cooperation mechanisms for. Um, so I completely agree. Well, Lucas, it's a region that, that we definitely um, need to be engaging more with because China and Russia definitely are. So yeah, Lucas Waden, thank you very much for appearing on the, the Talks on China podcast today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.